coming today. I uh, hope you had a good spring break. Um, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we took a break from Luke and we did Psalm 3 and 4. And um, if you missed those, you can catch them on our app. But we're, we're kind of back at it today, back in uh, Luke. And I did a little research this week. You know, we've, we've been in Luke for, for a good little while now. And I went back and kind of looked at the archive and this is our 20th message from the book of, of Luke so far. And I also noticed this week in my memories on Facebook, it popped up that it's been almost exactly one year since Clayton kind of announced this um, 20 year vision to teach through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I think since then we've learned it's probably more like a 30 or 40 year vision. <laughs> you know, it, it might take us a while to get there, uh, but it, it's been awesome. The feedback from you guys has been amazing. There's a guy that told us uh, recently that, you know, in all of his life, you know, growing up as a Christian and in all the churches he's attended, he's never grown so much spiritually as he has in these past few months. And, and I can tell you that's also true in, in my life. And this is coming from somebody that's been in full-time ministry for something like 23 years. And I just, I'm ashamed to say, I've just never really realized that the, the richness of, of scripture, there's so much packed into every single word. And there's so, so much more of God to be had and, and, and revelation of who he is and, and what his kingdom is like and how we can apply that to our lives. I mean, hearing the messages and studying them and, and then getting to teach, it's just been amazing. And um, I, I hope, you know, if you, if you weren't already convinced of your need for this in your life to sustain your faith when things get tough, my prayer is that after today, you will. You'll be a believer in what we're doing here. And you'll, you'll see the, the value in knowing the word of God. Not just knowing about it or knowing the, the stories, but knowing God in a different kind of way through the revelation of his word. And, you know, as we jump back into Luke, I just want to kind of recap where we've been. You, you, keep in mind, it's important to realize that here Luke isn't writing the Bible. Uh, Luke doesn't even know there's going to be a Bible. This is hundreds of years before there was a Bible, before all the other ancient writings and documents were compiled and put together along with the Torah and the Old Testament uh, prophecies and all the other ancient documents to form what we know of as the Bible. Luke had no idea that was coming. Luke's purpose was simple. He was investigating the things that people had said about Jesus, his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection for someone named Theophilus. Theophilus was, was a, a believer that had heard all the stories, put his faith in Jesus, but, but he wanted an accurate account, a chronological story, like give me the full story. And so Luke set out to do just that and he interviewed people and he recorded it and he systematically presents to us the story of Jesus' life and ministry and providing to us irrefutable proof that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the son of God, he was indeed the Messiah. So far, he's given us the testimonies of angels and Zacharias, Elizabeth and Mary in chapter one of the, te the testimonies of the shepherds, uh, Simeon, Anna, and Jesus himself at the age of 12 in chapter two, of God the Father and the Holy Spirit at his baptism, the testimony of John the Baptist, the, the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and then Jesus' genealogy in chapter three, his power over Satan, demons, and disease in chapter four, 
his power over the natural world and his authority to forgive sin in chapter five, and now his divine sovereignty over the Sabbath and the core of Israel's works-based system in chapter six. His account has been truly masterful. And of all the evidence he's presented, probably, probably the most compelling should be the very teaching of Jesus. His teaching was different. He was the most truthful, wise, and powerful preacher anyone had ever heard. And his teaching constantly drew these massive crowds of people. Why? Because they had never heard anything like it. Because Jesus was speaking the very words of God given to him by the authority of God himself, the true source of all wisdom. This means, and we're about to look at one of the sermons of Jesus, this means that when we, we look at his sermons, Jesus isn't just telling us what he hopes to be true or what we might think about doing in our lives or whatever. He's giving us absolute truth. He's telling us this is the way that it is ultimate truth. And now Luke records Jesus' second sermon. He, he titles it the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew calls it in chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. Most theologians think these are the same sermon. They're very, very similar. They, they could be two different ones, but we're going to assume they're the same. And we're going to refer some to, to Matthew. Um, his, his includes a little bit more detail. Matthew's uh, version of this sermon, it was written for a Jewish audience uh, while Luke's is more for, for a Gentile audience. It makes sense that he would include different details, right? Depending on the audience that he's writing to. So we'll refer some to Matthew, all that to say. And this is the word you've probably heard growing up. I know I did, never knew what it meant really, but these are the Beatitudes. Beatitudes means supreme blessedness. Jesus is, is giving us some, some ways to be blessed in this Life, And then he turns it around and gives us the woes, the, the curses. Some translations say that the sorrows foretold. And this here, Jesus is giving us kind of a glimpse into God's kingdom, the, the great upside down kingdom. He's, he's reversing things. He's telling this audience and us that could it be that everything you've thought about God and his kingdom and what it means to follow Jesus, could it be that you've gotten it exactly wrong, the opposite of the truth? Now, I just want to warn you today, uh, this will not be a feel-good message, so don't shoot the messenger, okay? We're going to look at the word of God and, and break it down, but it's going to be challenging, so I want to encourage you to, to keep an open mind and, and to really go into this with a posture of like, God, search me and know my heart. What do I need to, to hear from your word today? So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And in fact, um, if you guys want to stand just kind of in reverence of the reading of Scripture, I'm going to ask Jessica to come read for us today. Hello, my name is Jessica Arroyo. Uh, my family and I have attended the City Church since it started, and we are members of the Gomez City Group. I'll be reading Luke 6, 20 through 26. The Beatitudes. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus pronounces woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. So here we go. You see what I mean now about the, the upside down kingdom, the, the great reversal. It seems almost backwards, this thinking, right? So, so when did being poor and hungry and sad and rejected mean you were being blessed by God? I mean, what, what is that about? Like when, when did having wealth or a full stomach or joy or being loved by people become a curse? What is going on here? This isn't the kind of story we like to hear. This is not the, the classic underdog story that they make movies about. I mean, what kind of movie would this make, right? You have a guy that starts out as successful and rich and handsome, and then he loses it all and gets ugly and he dies the end, right? That's, that's not a story anybody wants to hear. It's backwards. What happened to started from the bottom? Now we're here. I mean, every great success story moves in that direction, but Jesus is, is kind of flipping it on its head here. He's making us think about some different things. So he basically gives four different related blessings and then woes. We're going to kind of take those in pairs, two by two, the related ones in four different sections and look at them. Most theologians think that, that Jesus is speaking figuratively here, spiritually speaking, but there's some that, that interpret it more literally. So we're going to kind of look at, at both angles there to make sure we don't miss anything. We're going to break down each of the contrasting ones and then at the end get to the, the literal side of things. And so first he talks about the poor and the rich in verse 20. He says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. So blessed are those who are poor. The poor will inherit the kingdom of God, but the rich Enjoy what you have for now. He, now, what he's not saying here is he's not saying that salvation depends on how much money you have. He's not saying that if, you're, if, if you don't have a lot of money, you, you're, you're good to go. And if you're rich, woe to you. You're, you're not saved. He's not saying that. And this is one of those um, times that we can, if we're going to interpret scripture, Clayton's talked about this some in the past. One of the best ways to do that is to use other scripture to try to figure out what this particular one is saying. And so we're going to do that with Matthew chapter five in this, this same sermon. Matthew says it this way, not just blessed are the poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what could that mean? Jesus is, is saying here, blessed are the poor in spirit. He who understands that he is spiritually bankrupt. The word for poor here translates to, to, to uh, cringe and cower in fear. It, it describes someone who is just utterly destitute and entirely dependent on someone else for the things that they need. This is the kind of poor that Jesus is saying we need to be spiritually speaking. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual poverty and the bankrupt condition of their soul, that no matter how hard they try, with their good deeds or their good behavior or how much even physical material wealth they have, they can't do anything to be made right with God on their own. They acknowledge that they are bankrupt in righteousness and have absolutely no resources 
with which they can, they can obtain the favor of God, to have a right relationship with God. You can't earn it by good works of morality or religious rituals. Blessed are those who understand that God owes him nothing. God doesn't owe you favor for being good. And there's nothing in us that can make us good to God. Now, we talked a lot about that last week, how the world doesn't revolve around us and God's blessings in our life and his presence in our life. Those don't equal things, stuff, material things, wealth, even happiness. My goodness, man, how, how we've screwed this up in the American church, this prosperity gospel that's kind of snuck in here. And we're going to find out today here in just a little bit just how dangerous that kind of thinking is. And so my question for you as we start today is, do you realize your spiritual poverty, bankruptcy without Jesus? Do you realize that you're, you're nothing on your own? You, you can't possibly achieve a relationship with God on your own? Or do you think you've got things pretty much figured out because Jesus doesn't stop with the blessings. He says, woe to the rich. Woe to those who imagine themselves to be rich spiritually, who think that their righteous deeds are enough. They're somehow impressive to God. You remember the, the Pharisees, this, they're the, the perfect example of what Jesus is talking about here. So I want to skip ahead at Luke 18. Jesus tells this parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And he tells this, this story about how they both go into the temple to pray. And he sets up the scene with this, this Pharisee going up to the front and, and saying this loud prayer for everyone to hear. And it actually says that he was praying this to himself as if to suggest he wasn't even praying to God. He was doing something else that wasn't prayer. And he stands up and he says in a loud voice, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. Swindlers, the unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here, he points them out. And he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. I'm something else. I'm, I'm better. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on everything that I make. I'm, I'm exactly the way I need to be to be made right in your sight. Now, contrasting that, you have the tax collector who was an outcast, looked down upon in that, that culture, the worst of sinners. But the tax collector went into the temple to pray and, and he stood at a distance and he wasn't even able to look up. He kept his, his gaze to the ground and he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says it was this man, the tax collector, that left fully justified before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Woe to those that think they are rich. He moves on to the hungry and the full. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If you're hungry now, you'll be full. If you're full now, you will be hungry. This is related to the first one. Being hungry refers to those who aren't just physically hungry, but, but hungry for, for God's presence in their lives. Back to Matthew chapter five, he says it this way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. They're hungry for righteousness. They're hungry for God to move in their lives, to do something in their lives. Have you ever been hungry? 
I mean, really hungry. I hear that from my kids all the time. Dad, I'm starving. And I'm like, good, right? Because that means you're going to eat when it's time to eat. But you might have said this too. You don't even know what that term means. You don't know what it's like to be truly hungry. Years ago, I did a a three-week fast where I ate nothing, just a a liquid diet. And and let me tell you what, that's a different kind of hunger. Do you you know what it means to to feel that that hunger? And now now think, what what could it mean to be spiritually hungry? Spiritually starving. It's an intense, deep, all-consuming longing for the acceptance of God. This is the picture of people that are spiritually just impoverished, starving spiritual beggars longing for the righteousness they can't obtain on their own. And he says, blessed are those who are hungry now. That's saying it's not going to last forever. You will be satisfied. See, the blessing here of the spiritually hungry is that they will be satisfied. The word for satisfied here is literally referring to to animals who you're trying to fatten up. Like they'll literally eat all they can eat until they can physically eat nothing else. This is the kind of satisfied Jesus is talking about for people that are, that are hungry for righteousness. They'll be fully satisfied. Psalm 34 10 says that they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. And David's famous Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then Jeremiah in verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 14, he's God speaking through Jeremiah and he, God says this, my people will be satisfied with my goodness, satisfied that have everything they need. Do you hunger for righteousness? Do you hunger for God's presence in your life? Do you hunger for God to do something in you spiritually or are you already satisfied? Like we talked about last week, are you satisfied with whatever cursory knowledge you have of God or do you want something else? Because if you're, if you're already satisfied, Jesus says, woe to you, woe to the fool. These are people who are totally satisfied with their own hypocritical self-righteousness. They think they have it figured out. Like, are you satisfied with this cursory kind of head knowledge about God? Or do you want something more? Do you want an experiential knowing who God is because you live it out? His presence is in your life day by day by day. You know because you spend time with him. See, unlike those who hunger for a righteousness they know they can't earn, these people imagine they have everything they need. They, they lack nothing. And the curse that Jesus is kind of laying on them here is that they will be eternally hungry. That they'll experience the, the gnawing, never-ending hunger of lostness separated from God in a place called hell. He says, you will be hungry when you're separated for my presence for all of eternity. Woe to you. Next, look at sorrow kind of versus joy. He says, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. So here we go again. 
What are we talking about here? Like, blessed are those who mourn. Are you saying that you have to be sad to be a Christian? And the thing about it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, have you seen some of your faces today? A bunch of sad sacks. No, I'm just kidding. You, you, look, you look great. It's not, it's not talking about being sad here. These are kind of building on one another. You have the poor, then the hungry. And this third one is, is building on those two. He's saying, blessed are those who mourn over the fact that they're poor and hungry. This is speaking towards repentance. Repentance. They, they, they're overwhelmed with grief for how they've offended God, this is different than worldly sorrow. You know, you can do something to someone and, and just feel bad about it, you know, or apologize or whatever. This, this is on a different level. This is repentance. This is, I've offended an infinitely holy and righteous God and my heart breaks over what I've done. And the result of that isn't just guilt or shame or anything. It's a, it's a turning from sin, a turning towards God and laying your life down, submitting to him. This sorrow Jesus is describing here, the, the mourning, it's an emotional breakdown that follows your recognition of your own spiritual bankruptcy, your lack of righteousness. James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says it this way. It is the sorrow that is according to the will of God, which produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. It's a sorrow that you've offended God and you've broken his law. It breaks your heart. You submit to him. You turn to him. You turn from your sin. When was the last time you were broken over your own sin? Are you broken and mournful over your sin or do you think it's no big deal. I mean, your, your, your ticket to heaven is punched. You're good to go, right? But Jesus says to us, woe to those who laugh now. The ones who, who laugh now in the middle of their sin, they laugh. They're content with their religious achievements and superficial morality. They happily contemplate the eternal bliss that they foolishly imagine awaits for them in the eternal kingdom. So, so they're fooling themselves. They think, I'm all good. I can't wait to get to heaven. And Jesus is saying, your life is on fire and it's heading in the wrong direction. Get that mental picture how, how absolutely absurd it would be for me to be standing up here engulfed in flames and laughing. But this is the spiritual picture that we get here. You're laughing now, but you will mourn and weep when, judge, when God's judgment comes for you and it will come. The sobering reality here is that Jesus says that many sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. Our churches are full of people that mistakenly think they're good with God. They're fooling themselves. And they're laughing all the way to judgment. Jesus looks past that outward show. He looks at the heart. This is especially dangerous to us as the American church. I mean, our churches are full of people who, who are getting it backwards. They don't even see it coming. There's a, a day coming of judgment where, where the, the, the holy and righteous judge, God, who alone can judge us, He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, the real from the pretenders. And Jesus said on that day, there will be many who say, Lord, 
You know me. I mean, I, I've, I've been in church. I know all the right things. I've prophesied in your name. Look at all the great things that I've done for you. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I don't know you. He's saying, wake up. Woe to you. You are in danger. Your life is unraveling. It's on fire, but you, you put the mask on. You pretend like it's all okay and like you're heading for some kind of eternity with God and, and, and Jesus saying, your heart is far from me. I don't know you. Woe to you. And then finally, he talks about being rejected versus being praised. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you, though, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So, so the first three talked about how, you know, we view ourselves or how God views us. This one's talking about how the world sees us. What do they see when they look at you? Jesus uses four verbs, hate, ostracize, insult, scorn. He's summing up just the, the hostility and the animosity that he's saying is coming for his disciples from a world that is unbelieving, that is far from God, that hates you for who you follow and what you say you believe. In Matthew chapter 10, before he sends out the 12 to go preach, he's, he's like, you're going to have some trouble. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be people coming after you like vicious wolves. And it was true. They all faced unspeakable things, persecution. And you know, most of them eventually gave their lives proclaiming the truth of the gospel. They were hated because of who they followed. And so are you. There are people in this world that hate you for what you stand for, for who you say you love, who you say you follow. My question for you, has God transformed your heart enough so that it's obvious to others? Have you ever lost friends or been rejected over your decision to follow Jesus and do things God's way? Or do you fit in with the crowd? Might it be that Jesus is saying to some of us, woe to you. If not, could you be lying to yourself? Could you be lying to others? Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Jesus links true disciples and true prophets with false disciples and false prophets. Because the true prophets were hated. And they were reviled and beaten and tortured and sometimes killed because people didn't like the truth that they were, they were being told from these true prophets. Now, the false prophets, they were looked up to. They were spoken well of. They, they told people what they wanted to hear. So Jesus is asking, do an inventory of, your, of yourself. Are you a true disciple or are you a false one? Are you a pretender? We don't always know the difference, but, but God does. How would he describe his relationship with you? 
Maybe when you think of eternity, you think of standing before a, a righteous and holy God, you're, you're full of fear and dread and uncertainty. You don't have to be today. There, there may be some things I've said here today from scripture that's just convicting to you because you know, man, I, I just don't know if, if I'm the real deal. I don't know if I'm, am I pretending? Do I really have a relationship with God? And I would say to you today, to you today not, not the Christian label that you put on yourself, but do you have a, a, a real and intimate daily relationship with God? If you, if you have any doubt whatsoever, you you have to get this right today. I'm, I'm asking you, man, make that decision to follow Jesus. This week's City 7, we're on number three. These are seven foundational truths. Why we believe what we believe. This week, it's this one. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Since all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so I could be made right with God. This is what we've been talking about here. It's, it's the, the spiritually poor and the hungry that realize I can't get to God on my own. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of his standard. His standard is perfection. And the wages of sin, like what, what is owed to us because of our sin in our life is death. So God had, had, you know, we had a problem with being made right with him. We had a sin problem. So Jesus came, he lived that perfect life. He died in our place on the cross. He rose from the dead and now we can put our faith in him and belong to his family, to have a relationship with God. God tells us that then his spirit lives on the inside of us. We're, we're different. We're, we're a new creation. We, we get to start life over. The, the slate is wiped clean. Everything is forgiven. Your, your past, present, future sins. And you, you know, you're no longer spiritually poor and hungry. You, you, you've been made new. And now, because of what you've done and putting your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross, you can now stand before him holy righteous, complete, lacking nothing without a single fault. Because when Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of your savior that's credited to us. That is the beauty and the miracle of the gospel. Will you respond to that today? God, I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of just being a Christian in name only. God, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I don't want to be on that side one day when you say, depart from me, I don't know you. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You can't earn grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. He gives it, he gives it freely. He loves you that much. I told you before, we've looked kind of like the spiritual aspect, you know, of, of these woes and these blessings, but could it be taken more literally? Could Jesus be referring to being, being literally poor and hungry and sorrowful and rejected? And the answer is yes, he can. And this is something that's hard for us in America to, to wrap our brains around. How is that even possible? He's saying to us and to them prophetically, this is how it's going to be for you who follow me to be literally poor and hungry and sorrowful and rejected. Our country, this is what we have to understand as Americans, okay? 
Our, our country is the abnormality in the church age. What, what, what we know of as Christianity and church and our safe little corner of the world, this is not how it's been ever anywhere else. We are the anomaly of history. We, we are the blip on the radar. We live in a country where whatever you think about the founding of our country, at the very least, the Christian faith was influential, open to it. Other places in the world, their governments or countries, they're, they're built on evil things, false gods, false religions, demonic powers even. For most of human history in the church age and for sure in the early church, like we can read about in the Gospels and the book of Acts, being a, a Christian did literally mean you were poor. You went hungry. Your life was full of sorrows. You were rejected by everyone, even the faithful ones. And in fact, you could argue, especially the faithful followers of Jesus. They were poor. They couldn't get work, they didn't eat, constantly arrested. This is what being a faithful follower of Jesus looks like almost all the time. Suffering isn't an odd thing. It's always been something to be expected. And we've taken this beautiful upside down message of Jesus and we flipped it back over and somehow think that, that God's blessing in our lives or our own faithfulness equates to material blessings. And that our prosperity as a nation is some kind of sign that we are more blessed and favored than believers in the rest of the world. Shame on us. Did you know there are more Christians killed at this point in history than any other time? Martyred for their faith. Here's some statistics just from the last year. Over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 Christians killed for their faith. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings attacked. 4,277 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. This is the reality of the church in the world today. This isn't the first century church. This is today. I read a story about in Cambodia like a generation ago, not that long ago, yet a tribe take Christians and tie them to crosses and drove nine inch stakes through their eyeballs into their brain because they followed Jesus. And you say, well, it's not that way here yet. I mean, I think that you can make a case that we're moving in that direction. Maybe not in your lifetime, but maybe, maybe not in your kid's lifetime, but probably. See, this is why we've been driving home over and over. You may be tired of hearing about it, but I don't really care because we are in desperate need of a deep rooted understanding of God's word that, that leads itself to a, a faith that's built on that solid foundation. 
so that when we're tested, when we face trials, not stress because of your unpaid bills, I'm talking about real suffering, your faith would be able to withstand it. You just might need it. See, suffering separates the pretenders from the genuine followers. It's like a lie detector machine. It exposes false believers. Christians should expect to suffer. And how just weak of us spiritually and how shallow must our understanding be of what it truly means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Our faith gets shaken at the, the slightest little turmoil. We sit back satisfied, fat and happy and brag to people about how blessed and highly favored we are. The day is coming where that, that stops. Do you have the faith to withstand it when it comes? Suffering in our lives will expose us. It'll show us, are we the real deal or are we pretenders? Are we a sheep or are we a goat? In the last days, and we are in the last days, it's going to get worse before it gets better. What are you doing in this time in your life to prepare yourself for that, to prepare your kids for that? See, the beautiful thing is Jesus says, we won't suffer forever. And the wicked might prosper now, but it won't be like that forever. Blessed are those that suffer because in just a short amount of time, we will be with him in paradise. No more suffering, no more pain. So you see, for those that suffer, that's a wise investment. A short time of suffering for an eternity with him. Paul says it like this, our present suffering is nothing compared to the, the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, as we close, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Don't you love it when you hear that? And it's always two different things. So I don't know how they could all be true, but this one's true. There's only two kinds of people in the world, the hungry and the full. Christ's true followers, the spiritually poor, hungry, sorrowful, rejected, they cry out to God for pardon and mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus. They're blessed in with eternal riches, satisfaction, joy, acceptance, and reward. In contrast, those who see themselves as full and satisfied, spiritually rich, happy, and accepted will be cursed with eternal poverty, emptiness, sorrow, and judgment. Now, let me be clear. What, what we're not saying here today is that to, to follow Jesus means you have to always be sad. You have to always be beat down, right? And, and, and full of shame over your sin. What we're talking about, understanding the balance. Yes, you are in your own strength. You are poor and you are hungry. You're full of sorrow because you know that apart from Jesus, you are nothing. But at the same time, you, you have this confident hope. You're confident in what Jesus did for you on the cross. You're confident in, in God, the creator of the universe, who is your now adopted father. You're, you're confident in your new identity in him as an adopted child. 
You see, you see the balance we have to live with here. So this is our, our big idea today is this, stay hungry. Stay hungry. I'm not, you know, we're not, we're not going through all this just to make you feel bad. Step on your toes, you know, make you feel guilty. But this, this might be for you, just your own, you may be feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you are one who's been fooling yourself or at the very least has been living for the wrong things. But at the very least, it's my prayer that you wake up to the dangers of this way of thinking, the dangers of our, our culture, our society, and this, this prosperity gospel where everywhere you turn, you hear it. And Jesus is saying that that's, that's, that's not the ultimate truth. That's not the way of my kingdom. This is a, a good time for a, a heart check, you know, to run like a little diagnostics check and ask God to search you and your, not just your actions, but your, your intentions, your motivations, your, your thoughts. And so I wanna leave you with, with three questions and these are gonna be difficult to ask. And I, I, it's gonna be easy to, to ask yourself these questions and be like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good with that one. Ask God to help you answer these questions. They're gonna be, um, in our, our uh, group guide this week, if you're in a, a city group, they're gonna be there. They'll be part of the daily devos. They're in the message notes. Like take them home with you and ponder these questions and ask God what he's speaking to you about these questions. The first one is this. If being a Christian meant suffering, would you still be one? If being a follower of Jesus literally meant that you were poor, hungry, sorrowful, rejected, literally, you, you couldn't get work, you couldn't eat. You follow Jesus at, at your own risk of imprisonment or even death. If, if it was that difficult for you to follow Jesus, would you still do it? And here's a better question, parents. Would you let your kids? Man, that's a heart check. Would you do it? Would you follow Jesus even at the cost of everything that you think is important? Secondly, are you building the kind of faith now that will sustain you through suffering? If real suffering comes to us, what are you doing right now to, to build the kind of faith that will sustain you through that? Is your house built on the rock or is it built on sand? Are you the real deal and growing or are you a pretender? Are you one that's on fire and laughing? Are you a sheep or a goat? What will the suffering you endure expose about your faith in Jesus? And then finally, if you answered no to one of these, if not, what do you need to stop doing, start doing or change? See, again, this isn't about just feeling bad and leaving and being like, where are we gonna go eat, right? It's about being exposed to truth and then asking yourself, what do I need to do about it? 
Speaking of fooling yourselves, that's what James said. If you hear truth and you don't apply it to your life, it's like somebody that goes and looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. He says, you're, you're fooling yourselves. So this is the application question. What do you need to stop doing or start doing or change to build the kind of faith that a true follower of Jesus has? Maybe it's a rearranging priorities. Maybe it's adding some good habits into your life, like spending time with God in his word and praying to him, building a relationship. Every relationship takes effort. Maybe it's stopping doing something, breaking bad habits, choosing to, to hang out with a different set of friends. Ask God, what is he, what is he saying to you to do? In fact, I just want to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just ask him in this moment, God, do a heart check on me. What are you convicting me of? What is, it, what is this thing that I'm feeling on the inside? And what do I need to do to, to change it? God, when, when I stand before you and I'm judged for my life, for my decisions, oh God, that I would be found on the right side. That I would hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of anything I've done in my own power or how good of a person I was or how many sermons I preached or, or any, anything else, but simply that I loved you and I followed you. I belonged to you because I've made that decision to not just be a, a, an American Christian in the Bible Belt, but to be a true blue follower of Jesus, no matter the cost. go where you say go. I would say what you say to say. And that if suffering comes, I would be willing to, to give it all. God, expose my motivations, expose my heart postures that don't line up with you. And give me the courage to change something.